Hi, it's Marcus. Welcome to the show. Given the fantastic guests we've had on the Thinking Leader over the last few months, we thought this week we'd share some of their great insights through some highlights. So this is the best of episode. So tune in, enjoy, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and business agility coach, Marcus Dimbleby. I'm going to steal Marcus's tagline here, and, and you know, which, which I think is so apt, which is that, that new ways of working don't work with old ways of thinking. And I think that gets into this, the cultural issue that, that you're talking about, Richard, which is that, you know, you're not just changing the way people do their jobs. If you're doing this right, you're changing the way they think about their jobs and indeed the way they think, period. And that's not easy. And it's important, you know, this is something that we deal with in our in our business all the time is, is having a bit of sympathy for people, recognizing, particularly when we're working, you know, this is, you know, really true when we're working with private clients rather than doing training, you know, for, for, for people who want to be learning our tools yep. and techniques. Yep. But when we come into an organization is to, is to have the sensitivity and, and particularly for senior leadership that, that this is hard. You know, one of the things that we do with a lot of our private clients is we kick an organ, kick things off with, with playing a game we call lies. We tell ourselves that, that gets into just that. What are some of the lies we tell ourselves as an organization? You know, that, that gets real very quickly. Brutal, isn't it? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's easy to, to, to be glib about it, but you have to have, you know, and I'm always amazed at the willingness of leaders to do this, yeah. to, 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 to have that discussion with their teams. But you have to have a lot of empathy and a lot of sympathy for them because, you know, it's not easy to hear the truth if you haven't been hearing it, if no one's been telling you particularly for years or maybe your whole career and now they're going to that can that can be difficult that um for, for us um over the later part of the nationwide journey um i was very fortunate actually to work for an incredibly enlightened chief operating officer uh, that patrick patrick eltridge yeah yeah great guy um and um he invested internally in in something that we called a ways of working center of enablement um and we put real focus on culture and we put real focus on supporting um, areas of the organization. So either leaders, teams, preferably teams and leaders working together um, on you know, the topics of psychological safety and then um, Arbinger's outward mindset. So we did mm -hmm. have yep. some pretty substantial in-house accredited training that, that allowed us to engage with um, individuals so they could learn content but ideally extant cross-functional teams who were starting to work together so that we could really deliberately address mindset, address um, that, that understanding of psychological safety, meaning not, not being nice to each other, but, but having that you know, low fear of interpersonal risk and, and that sense of being able to be open. It's, it's not quite at the radical candor end of the conversation, but, but for UK folk, the getting towards radical candor um, 
<laughs> and when I look at you, when I look at Kim Scott and Amy Evanson sort of coming together with that, so we we did. We were we were using that type of content to suggest yeah. to um, teams coming together for maybe the first time who'd been in role-based silos and had a project management machine that sort of did the handoffs. Actually, now we're seeing these teams come together, um, you know, in, in value stream oriented ways of working with with teams who are um, needing to find a common language and a, and a sort of common belief. And, and actually for a building society, the common belief system is really easy. It's not shareholder, it's, it's, it is member. So that sense right. of it, I think a building society has a really easy leg up in, in the sense of you're, you're really quite viscerally and directly connected to member, member value, but the culture and a culture where people feel safe to speak as they speak as they find to have an inclusive environment where diverse points of view are welcomed. Yeah. I, I, one hundred percent back that that actually that the I am forever grateful for the 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 bravery, the empathy, the humility of the leaders we were working with to to engage in that so willingly, so openly, and so vulnerably. And that you know like for everything that, that's it, right? That's not it's nothing. It's nothing about the individual involved. I think organization is a great culture. My perception was you need to have this forceful personality. To, to move an organization, particularly an organization of 100, 200,000 people. But it's very easy for it to cross the line into something very dark and dysfunctional too. You know, I love that you point that out because I think that's where a lot of times we make the ego bad. The ego is not bad. It's actually what gets us our success. It's what gets us to the finish line. It's what makes us a good person. Um, when we overuse it and it's not intentional, then the ego unconsciously protects us, right? And so the ego was designed when we were children, like two and three years old, starting at life situations. So, you know, life tri uh, crises and traumas and, you know, moves and being bullied or having a tough teacher, or having strict parents, like whatever your story is, it starts to build our ego. And we either learn it's safe if I'm quiet and I'm liked, it's safe if I, you know, I'm a good athlete. It's safe if I get straight A's and I'm the smartest kid in the class, whatever the story is. And so we start to build our identity through this ego as a child. Now, when you think of it, right, a child is super egotistical. It's all about me and until they're about four, they don't even learn the word we, right? And so everything is I, 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 me, me, me. And then we get into our teens and we almost start getting punished for the I mentality because like, oh, wow, it's not just about me and everybody's letting me know that right now and this really sucks. Um, and then you get into your 20s and now you're a young adult and you're starting your careers, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're starting to have relationships. And now you really learn like, oh, if I, if I don't have people at the finish line with me, I'm kind of losing, but we don't really have an intentional thought around that. We just know it's uncomfortable when, you know, we lose people or we get fired or we get laid off or we have confrontation that that sucks. But usually it's an ego driven reason for why we're having that in our world. Right. And so as you start getting further and further into leadership, if you don't learn about that ego, you absolutely need it. And majority, I would say, you know, majority leaders have well, majority humans have one to two dominant egos. And usually you have some form of, you know, protector controller if you are in a leadership role. Usually more of the controller and a and a complier or a protector to balance it out. But the reality is you have to have some controller because it's it's results oriented. 
It, you cannot have a success. You cannot climb a corporate ladder. You cannot build a career if you don't have ambition, if you don't have drive, if you don't have passion, right? And so that is the strength of the controller. You know, with that being said, even someone that has a dominant complier ego can be very driven by their controller ego. So for example, um, someone who's motivated by being light, they might've started their career of just, you know, people please, you know, you find the, mm -hmm. the leader that's going to promote me, promote you. You just do everything. You workaholic at all, all night hours and you get people going and you do everything people ask you to do, even if you're burning yourself out just to get recognized. Right. But your motivator is to be the best to win in order for people to like me in order for me to, to get, get recognition. Right. And so again, it's, there's yeah. a motivator for everything. Even if your dominant ego is not a controller, you can still have controller in you in order to get to that finish line. That's really interesting. You know, and, 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 and you know, my thought on this that I came to after, after scenes, literally hundreds of different CEOs in different industries around the world operate is that it, it's like you said, Christy, you know, we all have an ego. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, you, when you tell someone don't be egotistical or, or don't, 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 you know, you know, ha, have an ego, Kobe Rigo. that's like saying that that's like, well, no, what I was going to say is curbing <laughs> is different though. Cause that's the, th see, I think that's the key. Just, I think that the most successful leaders I've seen are not ones who have no ego. They're ones who have learned to ride their ego instead of letting their ego ride them. So they use yeah. it in an intentional way that they are yeah. in control of their ego rather than being unconsciously controlled by their ego. That's what I want to pick out because you started off, Christy, saying it's, it's the unconscious mind. And that's the flaw, isn't it? Because if you allow your ego unconsciously to run wild in its predominant main factor, that's where you get the problems. But if you can understand that, and I think that's why it was great asking these questions because I, I've learned so much about these three domains of egotism that people aren't aware of. And if you become, it's like everything, if you become aware of it, you then know how and when to apply it, when there's Bryce and when to temper it, when to push harder and unleash those different variations of the ego you have with him. Cause you all have it, can't get rid of it. It's a natural internal capability that we all have. And it's not a bad thing. And I think we've got to go away from this stigma of ego is bad. I'm fed up of reading HBR reviews with the big guy in a suit and the cockerel going, ego is bad for leadership. It's not, it's got to be understood and the lack of understanding and thinking about it and then, and then managed. Yeah. I, How do you I see think, people I manage? I, I want to push back on that a little bit, actually, because I do mm -hmm. think that ego can be very bad. I think it's well, yeah, an yeah, overused yeah. ego is, is detrimental yeah. to success, to relationships, to happiness, to all mm -hmm. of it. Absolutely. Exactly. But you can't, but the idea that you're going to eliminate it, that it's a, that it's a switch that you're going to, have that you have a choice to turn on or off is is where the problem i think lies i think ai changes everything for, for a number of reasons ai is not a new thing um you know ever since science fiction models since you know the ray kurzweil uh singularity idea man and machine at some point were headed on a clash <laughs> a crash to come together um i think what's really been profound about the last year is the real world application of AI. What started with, um, you know, very much, how do these language models benefit us in our day-to-day -to -day tools? And my view a year ago was these things are really cool. And as a business, if we can be 10 times more efficient as a consequence of removing 
administrative tasks, tasks that take time. If AI can make us more efficient, that's a good thing. Then I started to like rethink my entire philosophy on the role of AI as you start to see more and more people developing. So you're starting to see like before it was like, oh, it's going to be an aid. It's going to be an aid to support an industry. Now I'm like, it's going to replace certain industries, right? I start to, when you start to see these things develop. And then the bit for me that is kind of the unknown unknown in the change equation is what does all of this mean for society? Because there is a ton of unintended consequences. We talk about the ethics of AI. What does this mean? You know, a few days ago, Elon Musk um, and Steve, Steve Wozniak. Wozniak. Yeah. yeah. They come out and say, you know, which I also think is a little hypocritical, if I'm being honest with what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, just, just a <laughs> exactly week Exactly that. Everybody stop, everybody stop doing what you're doing and let us figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah everybody stop doing the thing that we've poured billions of dollars into doing. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a little hypocritical. However, um, I do think that their concerns are somewhat probably genuine because I think yeah. they're recognizing, well, this is changing things very quickly. Um, and there are, you know, there are so many new regulatory considerations. Even just take something like IP. You know, right now we have governance that says, if you create something, I can't steal from you, but I can be inspired from you. And those distinctions are somewhat clear, not perfect. Um, you start to extrapolate and go, well, in a generated world that is powered by machine learning, what does that mean for IP? Those distinctions have got very, very narrow from inspiration to stealing, right? So suddenly right, you get artists like saying you know that 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 uh, you know some of these 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 graphic ais are stealing their styles you know and stuff and they they are based on the input of actual artists mm -hmm. so where's That's the line like breaks. you say yeah well th this is all built on real input and you know i i think everyone from regulators governments builders entrepreneurs i think everyone has to pay attention and it's very easy to get caught into the mindset of these things are fads because of the the way in which everybody has sort of gone all in and really enthusiastic yeah. about these new possibilities. It. It's very easy to trivialize it. Um, however, I would say this feels different to previous movements in a way where um, if the biggest cost to society right now is intelligence, you know, hiring people, developing skills, when that cost is almost eradicated to zero, of vastly reduced, that changes the entire system. That changes the way we think about economic models. That changes the way we think about business. So a long way of saying, how does it affect Marcom? Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. So what, what this is all bringing really is, the, is this word disruption. And, and you talked about change and how that scares people. And disruption scares people as well. And the field we're in, we talk a lot about deliberate disruption. So we try mm. and help people to be disruptive. And that's often seen more of a sort of young people, Gen Z type of game where, and it, and it alienates other markets and other individuals. But as we're seeing, you know, you have to disrupt yourself because if you don't, you are going to be disrupted by something. I, I'm curious, we were talking during the break about, about teaching leadership. And you made a real interesting observation that I totally agree with, which is that you can't really teach leadership in business school. Um, you want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's so much of 
leadership. I mean, you, you go to business school and they, they teach you about, you know, T accounts and where, where, the, where the numbers go on the balance sheet. It's, it's just, a, it's, to me, it's really impossible to, to teach people how to behave and, and how to truly understand who they are as a person and what their values are and, and use those values to get things done. I'll give you a great example. When I was going to Columbia Business School, um, one of the young ladies there was a vice president of ethics for Enron. This poor young lady, uh, we have we have an anniversary meeting, anniversary coming up in a, in a few year, in a few months in New York, where I'm going to see her again. I haven't seen her in a few years. She had taken a job with F Enron as like a VP of ethics and compliance about four months before they went belly up. Right. And this happened right in the middle of our class. Long story on her or the short story on her is it took her like a year to get another job because it, it literally had this four month period where it said Enron on her, on her uh, resume. So we were, the, the students said, you know, listen, we want to, you know, have an ethics course included in our curriculum here in the business school. And um, the school said at that point said, well, we don't have an ethics course in the business school. That's in the law school. And we, so the obvious question was like, then what, do you, then what, what is ethics? And ethics was defined at that time as if you, you just obey the law. That, that was the total definition in Columbia Business School is ethics is you, you obey the law. And we occasionally would have guest speakers come in. We had this one lady who ran a desk at one of the big trading houses. I don't even know who it was. And we, we got into this whole, the whole concept of kind of um, um, asymmetry of information. And her answer was, well, it's just buyer beware. If we have information they don't have, you know, we get a trading advantage from it and we make money and they lose money. That's just the way it is. And I can tell you the class exploded. Like literally people were like out of their minds. Like, and I said, I can't even believe you're here. I can't believe you're allowed in this building to say, you just said to me, cheating's legal. That's what you said. And so anyhow, now Columbia Business School now has an ethics class. I have no idea what they teach because I haven't <laughs> gone to it. But you know, leadership is really, it's, it's values based. And then going back to Brad Anderson, who I talked briefly about before, when I went to work at Best Buy, he would talk a lot about servant leadership. And he gave me, gave me this book, as you can see that. <laughs> so Audrey's, Audrey's servant leadership. And I've probably given away a thousand copies of this book. So he gave me this book, which I actually read. And, and this is Autry's. And there's a couple of people have written on servant leadership, but there's a page in here that I've used with, with my, I, I've tried to live this, but the five ways of being uh, authentic, vulnerable, accepting, present, and the one that's really, really difficult, useful, <laughs> right? <laughs> so when I'm talking to young leaders, the first thing I do is send them the book. Um, and then we, you know, authenticity, ethical, useful leadership. It's, it's really rare, you know, that a leader stands up and says, so I know, you know, when I was a CEO or a leader in a company and somebody came to me and I said, ask them a question and they said, I don't know. I knew I was on the right path.
right? Because if they had the intestinal fortitude to say, I don't know, then you knew that, okay, now this person's being truthful with me. Let, now we can, now we can work on this. And more than truthful, truthful. I mean, this is something you're, you're now getting to the core of what we preach and what we teach all the time, which is that it's actually, that's a, that's a courageous leader. That's a strong leader that can say, I don't know. It's when, 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 a, when a leader doesn't know and acts like they do, that's a weak leader. That's a, that's an insecure leader. And, you know, that's so important for people to understand because people have got it in their head that it's not okay to not have all the answers if you're in charge and they've gotten bad models. And, you know, I, I'm going to say one of them was Jack Welch, you know, was, was, was a classic example to me of, of where this bad type of leadership comes from is, is you don't have to come in with your guns blazing to every meeting, blowing everything up and telling everyone what they don't know. And, this whole idea of seeking understanding before seeking to be understood, of asking questions is so important to real leadership. And the empowerment that gives to people, doesn't it? When you say that as a leader, if you go into your, your team and go, hey, guys, uh, there's this problem. And you know what? I don't know. But I know how we find out you guys. You're the people who I know can come together because I can't do this. Uh, and the empowerment and the, the gratitude and the engagement you get from people then stepping up, like, hey, the boss can't do this. We can do this. We can show him how good we are. We can show her how capable we are. And you just get such a different power curve tilt in that sort of dishevelment of before where they're just beaten down, being told what to do. And then when, as Bryce said, when these leaders bullshit their people and give them the answers that they've made up because they don't say, I don't know, and then you get the ramifications of the wrong answer and people taking action on the wrong decision. That causes far more trouble than just saying, look, guys, I don't know. Can somebody come either give me an answer or let's get together and work out the answers ourselves as a group? All of us, you know, together can do this. And I think that's such a, as you mentioned, Brian, it's such a hard hurdle for many leaders to get over and accept that. But you can't, you can't know everything in this day and age, in this complex world we're in, it is impossible for an individual, let alone a C-suite, to know all the answers because it's just moving too quick. It's too vast. It's too complex. But if you've got a large organization, somebody in there somewhere will know or collectively with the right questions, as you said, Ron, and the right level of challenge, they will come out with the right answers that you need. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. For our listeners who aren't familiar with TPS or just some of the principles, could you just give them a, a 60 second kind of crash course into it? I just wrote 35, 40 pages on this. You want 60 seconds? So, <laughs> um, so TPS, Toyota Production System, was born out of necessity. And in fact, before TPS, 
was born, there was there was necessity. Um, and so in the very early days of Toyota, they were a loom company. They made weaving looms to make fabric. You know this because you've been through the whole story. Um, and from that came the concept of Jidoka, which is badly translated as automation with the human touch. It's much deeper meaning than that. But essentially, it was the ability for a machine to tell a human operator when it had a problem. And in this case, when a thread broke. So that became the first underlining sort of principle of what became the Toyota production system was using machines to do the things that humans shouldn't waste the time doing and then use the humans to make intelligent decisions and do the things that humans are better at doing. And that's where this idea of the machine can tell you when it was faulty and then we could sort of execute uh, and, and work a little bit more effectively. Fast forward a little bit. It's been longer than 60 seconds, but less than two minutes. That's all right. As much time as you want. So fast forward a little bit. And uh, the son of the founder, his name was Sakichi Toyoda, was the founder. So this is Akio's great-grandfather or grandfather, I forget now. Yeah. And, uh, and then so, uh, but his son, Kichiro Toyoda, comes along. And he's the one who takes uh, Toyota, as we know it now, into the auto manufacturing business by selling the plans, the blueprints to this original weaving loom to a British company in Birmingham called Platt Brothers in about 1924 for £100,000, so a bunch of money back in 1924. And Kichiro Toyoda muses with the problem of waste and muses with the problem of the fact that, you know, post-World War II Japan, uh, they have none of the materials, none of the resources, none of the capability of the West, especially in America. And so he muses with the fact that they've got to find a way to be able to produce more with less. So the concept of just in time was born. And in the, in the new chapter in the book, I talk about this and some of the uh, direct quotes and citations from the Toyota material that sort of talk about that. And so originally, the this and these that becomes the second principal pillar of the Toyota production system. But essentially, it was born out of need. TPS, Toyota production system, born out of need is that they couldn't afford the machinery, the tooling, the materials and everything else. And to quote one of the key architects of TPS, Taichi Ono, he said the fundamental doctrine of the Toyota production system is the total elimination of waste. And that's yeah. a direct quote from his book with Mito San when he, he wrote that book's one that sticks in my head. Uh, and of course, Kanban, there's lots of people will all be rushing around. And I've written a bit about Kanban to correct some of the nonsense there as well, became the sort of fundamental capability of TPS to enable just in time all this total elimination of waste to be enacted upon. And, and for the listeners, Kanban isn't just a board full of post-it notes in to do, doing and done columns. So anyway, there you go. That's my six. And it's an amazing <laughs> thing. And, 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 and like we mentioned, it's, it's, it's applicable to everything, not just mm -hmm. production. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's the philosophy. It's the, it's the total elimination of waste. It's the continuous improvement. It's the, it's the Genshigen Butsu management by walking around all these principles that, that come from this. And we have to be so sure that waste is, this is one of the challenges, when, and, and I suffer with it because I don't speak Japanese. I know lots of Japanese words and what they mean, but I have no ability to speak Japanese, and like a lot of my friends and colleagues. You and me both. But when we talk about waste, what we actually mean is non-value-added activity. So any activity yes. that doesn't add value to the product or process or the, the work that we're doing. 
Um, when you use the word waste in Latin America, they just think of garbage or trash or rubbish, you know, depending on your language. So we, we, it's important to qualify that and, and sort of the understanding behind TPS is about identifying, say, the word muda, which is the Japanese word that's generically used for waste in, in lean circles, really talks about the uselessness and the futility of what we're doing. So when you dig deeper into the meanings, and I speak to a lot of Japanese people who understand the meanings of their own language, you start to realize it's more than just about waste. It's about really mm -hmm. understanding the work we do, the deep, the deepness and the, the thinking behind the work we do, and actually understanding of futility, the uselessness, the pointlessness of some of the activity, which a lot of modern organizations would do well to focus on. If you think. Something that I, I think is so important and we see so often with, with, with organizations we work with, which is what you term political bias. And, and most people hear that and, and say, oh, it means like a bias towards one political party or not. But that's not what it means at all. Can you, can you explain what political bias is and how it affects or informs the iron law? Yeah, and, uh, and, and you're right. It has nothing to do with uh, political bias as it's normally understood that you're biased for one party or the other or one political position or the other. And, and actually, that's why I've started calling it power bias instead of political bias. is to try to avoid that misunderstanding, which I see happening a lot. So power bias uh, is an additional bias on top of cognitive bias. Cognitive bias is psychological biases. Power biases are, are the kind of biases when you see that you see when people are jockeying for position, for instance. So you're jockeying for position. You want to be number one or you want your project to get funded. So you do what it takes to make your project get funded. Usually that means making it look good on paper. So you underestimate the cost and, uh, and, and the schedule. It looks like it's going to be cheaper and faster than it is going to be. And you overestimate the benefits. So it looks like it's going to generate more positive things for people, whether that's, you know, money or user experience or whatever, uh, than it's actually the case. And that is done deliberately. Cognitive biases are not deliberate. This is something we do unconsciously and we can't help it because, like I said, we are hardwired. Political bias is different. We actually do it deliberately. And that's the main difference between uh, cognitive bias and, 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 and power bias. Power bias we do in order to stay in power and to keep our position. So monument building is an example of power bias. And, and a lot of, of mega projects, uh, you know, qualify as, as monuments. Uh, a lot of beautiful monuments, too, in my view, uh, that I wouldn't want to do without. There's also the thing about cooking the books is another uh, example of power bias. It's completely a classic, you know, within mega project uh, uh, decision making is that, uh, you know, the the actors, the pro proponents of a certain project will will cook the books to make the project look better than it is. So these are all power biases and they are something that comes on top of the cognitive biases. Do you think that, that planning fallacy is triggered by power bias in many cases? If, the, if it's pure planning fallacy, it wouldn't be because pure planning, planning fallacy would be, uh, you know, uh, non-intentional. It's not deliberate. Uh, so that's the definition of the planning fallacy. This is actually our optimism because we are, originally the planning fallacy was only about time. So it was, it was about underestimating the time that things take. So, you know, you are going to write your, let's say, your PhD, uh, your doctoral dissertation. You think it's going to take three years. It takes five. That's the planning fallacy. And that's not something you do deliberately. Uh, so so I would say no. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, the, that there can be things that 
looked like the planning fallacy, and it was actually generated deliberately by people uh, who uh, deliberately chose to misrepresent the schedule because they knew that they were more likely to get approval and funding if they made their project look like it could be done faster and cheaper than it actually can. Exactly. We see that so often when people are jockeying, don't they, for position. And if your project's up against someone else, and we talk about this, Bryce, don't we, about internal politics and careerism, and then you see the behaviors of project leads who are trying to get that sign off, and they will, they will give these false metrics and these false hopes, and that's linked to the optimism that ties in with the power bias, and ultimately the planning fallacy underpins that. But the lengths people go to and then how quickly it starts to derail and you see those KPIs and those metrics not being hit. And then it's a sunk cost fallacy of how far down the road we are, whether we stop these things or carry on. Talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about like how you first started working with Alan. I mean, obviously, you, 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 are, you are one of the heroes of my book. You and Marty Malloy spearheaded probably one of the biggest, most important parts of, of the transformation that, that Alan undertook at Ford, which was, which was completely changing the dynamic with United Auto Workers, doing something that had previously been be- believed to be impossible, reopening a contract with them. And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that in, and also that in the context of working together, because I know that the relations with labor was a big part of this working together philosophy. No question. I think it's a significant component of how Ford was able to, you know, go its own way. And, and as you, as you again, called out nicely in the book, American Icon, when you think about it, um, Alan got there in the fall of 06. Um, we had been through a North American restructuring plan already um, underway, a lot of plant closings, a lot of negativity, a lot of, you know, a need to to really invest in the product, but also to reduce the manufacturing capacity because our volumes had declined and we were losing money. Um, Alan came in, of course, and was the face of, of, of Ford to raise the $23 billion, which then helped um, give us the, the path to be able to do the things we wanted to do, which is a lot of money, of course, as we borrowed that much money um, to make that happen. But, you know, one of the things that Alan did well was he asked a lot of questions and he, he did it. He tried to do it in a very you know, non-confrontational way. And he would always so he'd pull me aside all the time because he wanted to understand the labor component of it because I had a lot of experience in it. And as you mentioned, Marty was still a good friend of mine, was a great partner. And he would ask the questions like, you know, so tell me why we can't reduce people or, you know, because we have the jobs bank. And we had the gen obligations, guaranteed employment numbers. So we basically had a situation set up where even if volumes declined or other things happened, you were paying people full time not to work. Um, Let let, let me just jump in here if I can, Joe. This was actually the very first major story I wrote when I started covering Ford for the Detroit News in, in 2005 was, I don't remember the number, it was like, you know, 1,100 people paid not to work or something like this. And in in reporting this story, my my head, I mean, I my mind was was well and truly boggled because I didn't, you know, I, I grew up in California, didn't know how things worked in, in in the industrial parts of the country, and and folks, people at this time that Joe's talking about, and I went and sat with a lot of them, they were getting paid on average seventy eighty thousand dollars a year to to show up at a Ford factory and spend all day in a break room, watching uh, war documentaries on, on the History Channel, doing crossword puzzles, and getting getting 
paid, like I said, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. Some of them for years had been doing this, and under the current contract that that had been negotiated in better times, there was nothing Ford could do about that. And and as you say, Alan was. <laughs> He was like, explain to me again how this works. I felt like, and Alan was the kind of guy that would ask you a question, he'd answer it, and then he would, if he didn't like the answer, he'd kind of ask it nicely again. Um, <laughs> and then and then he wouldn't say, like, you know, you're wrong or that doesn't make any sense. He just would look at you, and, they, and then about a day later, he'd ask you the same question again, and then he would ask you the same question again. So he kept asking the same question because he didn't, he didn't, I don't think he, he wanted to ever grasp the answer because it, you know. So, but 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 that that's that kind of gets us to, our approach, my approach, frankly, even before Alan got there, was to have an honest dialogue with the UAW leadership and our employees about this. Not just the guaranteed employment piece, but just the competitiveness of our company and where we really were and have an honest dialogue on it, which hadn't really happened because there was Ford and the UAW had a great relationship amongst the big three traditionally, but it was it was more of a we don't talk about tough things, we don't fight about things, we don't it was it was it was, it was let's all get along. Um, and our company was at risk of, you know, not ever, you know, not even surviving. So we had a big meeting in Vegas, you cover it in the book, um, where I, for the first time, kind of show them all the union leaders, kind of our our competitive challenges, where we rank on safety, quality, efficiency, what it means, how much it's costing us, all these things by plant. And we requested um, each of the plants to open up the contract locally to do competitive operating agreements to get more competitive locally to be able to contribute to our success. And and I give a lot of credit to the UAW leadership at the time. Bob King was the president of, sorry, was the vice president of the Ford department. They had the courage to say, we're, we think there's a risk here. We're gonna, we're gonna try and do this. So we actually in 2006 went plant by plant. I think with, with exception of two plants, we did com- new competitive operating agreements that were significantly improved the efficiency and reduced some of the, of the you know, friction stuff that we had in the business. But it didn't get to the core of the, some of the challenges. And then you fast forward 2007, we did the UAW negotiations, and that's when the VEBA, the Voluntary Employee Beneficiary Association, put the retiree health care obligations, which were a significant burden to the balance sheets of the auto companies, um, to the UAW trust. And this was, this was huge. I remember at the time, I know that we calculated our paper that on every car built in the United States, for a Ford built versus the same class of car built by Toyota in the United States, $2,400, I think, added cost to the Ford just to service this, this, these retiree healthcare costs and stuff. And if you think about that, folks, when you're talking about millions of vehicles being built, $2,400 per vehicle that Toyota could plow into R&D, could plow into making more efficient factories, could plow into marketing. And is it any wonder then that you see this kind of relentless increase in the market share of, of particularly the Japanese automakers in this, in this decline of the American automakers. And that's why it was so important to tackle this, right? It was. And so it was foundational. I mean, it was, I don't remember the exact number, but it was certainly a lot bigger than the actual labor content of the vehicle, yeah. um, uh, which is fascinating, right? So Right. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's part of the history because there were so many retirees compared to active workers because of the downsizing that occurred, you got to remember that, you know, in the 60s, GM and Ford had, you know, combined well over 50% market share in the U.S. And then, you know, by the time we're talking about here, it's in the 30s. So just a massive, plus, you know, a lot of stuff was done in-house, you know, vertically integrated before and changed. Also pre-automation too, a lot. Correct. A lot of reasons. So, um, but, and then, 
2007, we did the agreement and we introduced some new concepts. And um, it was fascinating because it was a manu- it was a it was believed to be a monumental agreement, and it was in many ways. Yeah. Um, however, that's before the financial crisis hits. Right. Then the global financial crisis hits, and like, oh my gosh, now we're really in trouble. People confuse complexity with difficulty. You know, there yeah, are big there are there are simple problems that are very hard to do. They're not complex though. They're not even complicated. They're just hard. They require a lot of energy, to your point. And and people then I feel give themselves a pass on tackling them by saying, Oh, this is so complex, we can't tackle this. Now I'll give you my my biggest example, which is probably the most controversial thing I can step on here. And you may disagree with me on this, but gun control in the United States, you know, we're, we're now have exceeded 200 mass shootings in this country this year. We aren't even, you know, halfway through the year and you people have one, you had one a week on average for the past decade. Yes. And it's going up and the severity is going up. So I tell people and people get very upset when I say this, that I asked them what what sort of problem on the we're on the Kniffen framework does 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 stopping gun violence uh, and mass killings lie and people always say oh it's it's a complex problem and I say it's a simple problem we've made it complex because of politics because of of culture and things like this but every other country in the world has figured out how to deal with this so it's not a complex problem at base. You simply you simply take away you know military weapons from the hands of people who who aren't in the military, you know, and people get very upset when I say this, but I think that that what you're just talking about goes into that because the work of actually dealing with it, at least in the United States, requires more energy than anyone's willing to spend, more political capital, more effort, and therefore they say, oh, it's just too complex, we can't solve this problem, so let's not do anything about it. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I actually agree. I think the solution is known. Yeah. Um, after Dunblane in the UK or after the shooting um, in Tassie in Australia. Yeah. And I think this is key to astro mapping. The dispositional state of the British and Australian population was such that a draconian ban on guns wasn't just acceptable. Not doing it was unacceptable. Yeah. Now, I think that that was important. And we don't just ban military weapons, we ban all weapons, except in a licensed gun club under under lock and key, apart from farmer shotguns. And, you know, we're starting to realize we haven't got enough control over those, given some of the misuse. But But then you've got this very complex history. So I think the dispositional state around the problem in the States is highly complex. Yes. Yeah. And that means that the simple solution can't be followed. Right. Um, and so what you have to do is to look, well, actually, what are the constraints? What are the constructors? Now, one of the constraints is whichever amendment you decided should allow people to carry around very inaccurate arms, which couldn't really do too much damage except on mass, which has now been used for high velocity rifles and everything else. Right. So that's one. Yeah. yeah? And that's that ties into a very strong libertarian tradition, both to the left and the right in the US and antagonism towards government. So you can start to map out what the various constraints and constructors are. And then you can start to look at how do I change those rather than how do I solve gun control because that's too big. Right. It's how do I change the dispositional state 
so a solution to gun control could emerge more effectively. And Absolutely. if you think about it, it's how we manage teenagers. It's what I've always said about Kinevin. You, you, you don't try and manage things by objectives. You manage things by changing the way the buggers interact or stopping certain types of interaction. And you move things in different ways or you create viral infection. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.